Hi, Shmuel. Okay, welcome everybody to lesson number four. <clears throat> this week Shmuel's back, so hopefully we won't have any technical issues. And we'll all be able to stay online all the time. Okay, you're going to hold it. If somebody calls, you can talk to them and tell them what the problem is. Rabbi? Yes. By the way, what we're seeing is your screen. Like not, um, it's like the teacher screen. Oh, you see? Okay, one second. Hold on. 
Okay, we're just one second. We're going to share. The, we're sharing the wrong screen. It's going to be screen two. Oh, second, hold on. It'll be screen two. Stop sharing. How do I find my band? There, I see. You see it? And I can't, you know, have a box. Like you just. Oh, there we go. One second, hold on. We'll stop share. Share. Share screen. That's why I told you you should look it up. I'm going to go. Yeah, I know how you'll do that. I know what you need to do. I'm going to go on TV. Make sure to share sound. The soup is so good. Just give me one second, hold it for some reason. It's not enlarging. Well, how come it's not enlarging the meter? I can only see you. Just I can't give me one see. second. Just hold on. We'll get to Okay. You. Just letting you know. There we go. Okay. Hold on. There we go. Share screen. Uh, it's this one. This one. This one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. You should all see it now properly. Thank you. Okay. We're on. So don't okay, go back. Yes. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to class number four. What would be a class without any technical difficulties? <clears throat> Hopefully this will do it for the rest of the class. And we are ready to rock and roll. Today we'll be starting on page 131. Thank you. And we are going, this class is probably going to be one of the most asked questions class. So let's get right into it with the starting today with the class video for the beginning. So just before we start the video, we're gonna make sure that sharing sound and we're ready to rock and roll. There we go. Birth and death are as contradictory as night and light but they are strangely associated with an identical Hebrew word, kever. Kever means a tomb where a body is buried. But kever also means a womb where life is formed. A womb is a gateway to life, while a tomb is a gateway to afterlife. But is there an afterlife? Or does laying a body to rest in a grave mark the absolute end? If it were within our power to interview a soul, we would undoubtedly glean insight into afterlife. Instead, we have chosen to eavesdrop on a set of twins in their mother's womb to shed some light on the before life. Hey twin, I'm scared of birth. Why? It's the end of existence. We get ejected. We're finished. I'm also anxious, twin, but I'm not scared. 
birth is supposed to be a transition to the real life. Huh. Don't give me the hiccups with your afterbirth real-life fantasies. How can life be supported without an umbilical cord and amniotic fluid? Well, maybe it's a radically different form of life. Maybe we won't need the cord. I wish you were right. I keep kicking that thing away from my neck. Stop spinning for a minute and imagine, twin. After birth, we will enter a ginormous universe filled with light and with air that we will breathe through our mouths. Come on, grow some brain cells, will you? Mouths are not for breathing. Besides, if your postnatal paradise existed, why has no one ever returned from that realm? Forget it. Once we leave here, we collapse into cold, dry nothingness and wither into eternal gloom. I don't think Mother would allow that to happen. She nurtures us in this cozy womb. She sends us nutrients for months on end. For what purpose? Just to end it all with birth? No. Mother has greater plans for us than that. Now you're beginning to sound infantile. Do you see a mother lurking in some corner of the womb? Not a trace. Show me a mother. And as for your nutrients, can't you feel that annoying cord? Don't exchange empirical for fantastical. Thankfully, these two delightful infants made it safely to the other side. They grew up in the universe that one had described and the other had denied. And until today, they continue their clamorous debate. It is only that the topic of contention has slightly shifted from is there life after the womb to is there life after the tomb? we've seen from this parable and the central message of this parable is the bottom line is is there something beyond our present state of existence beyond the earthly life that we live in the world the fact that we can barely comprehend the concepts and the ideas of the afterlife does that mean that it doesn't exist just because we can't imagine of what it's like or that there's an entirely different world doesn't mean it doesn't exist, just like the children in the story couldn't believe that it can't exist. And in truth, we are born twice. You know, they always said the second coming, they were reborn. We are born twice. We don't die, we're born twice. Once from the womb and once from the tomb. So what is it? What does happen in the afterlife? It's something that our own world experience can't imagine. Because this, what we're living in right now, for us is so real. So how can we imagine that something else is even more real? Or is real, or just as real? Because we just think of it, that doesn't... But that's the difficult part of it. How is it possible? Like those two kids in the womb. And today we'll be discussing the concepts and the topic of afterlife. Most of us have this question, and I'm sure... This was one of the attractions for some, maybe, to become in here. What's going to happen in the afterlife? So what we're going to discuss today in today's class is talk about the unique concepts and the subject of what is the afterlife and discuss what may be the possible psychological benefit from having these beliefs, from knowing about it. One can argue, who cares? Let me just wait until I get there. And we're going to talk about today, A, what is the benefit of us knowing about it, 
and B, what we can what we can actually do about it. So let us begin with a little bit of an exercise so we don't understand what we're talking about. And on page 128, we have an exercise here. What do I know about Jewish view on afterlife? And what would I like to know about the Jewish view on afterlife? Anybody? Help me, Aaron. If you want to chime in from Zoom, please do so as well. What do I know about the afterlife? Anybody? That it exists. We go next to Hashem. What would you like to know about the afterlife? Anybody? Do you want to be a guarantee too? Okay. Okay. In addition, the first question I'm sure that people ask about the afterlife. And probably the uh, most common question is, and I probably hear this question, do Jews believe in hell? And if they do believe in hell, how am I going there? <laughs> so you know the story about this fellow, this young businessman who was leaving from Chicago, was freezing cold weather and decided to go on vacation, but he had to leave a day earlier before his wife. And he goes down to Miami Beach for a vacation Settles into the hotel room, and that night before he goes to sleep, sends a little message to his wife to let her know about the upcoming vacation, what he arranged for her. But unfortunately, he missed one letter in the email address, and the note, unfortunately, went to a woman who was grieving and just lost her husband. And all of a sudden, the family is listening to this woman reading her email, and she collapses. And they run over and say, what's the matter? What do you read that you collapsed? And they, they, all of a sudden they see the email and it says, dearest wife, just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival. See you tomorrow. P.S. It sure is hot down here. <laughs> but let's back up a moment. Before we ask if Jews believe in hell, what is hell? What is it? When I say the word hell, what do you think of? Fire. Fire. Evil. Evil. Satan. Satan. Pain. Pain. Punishment. Okay. So before we start discussing the afterlife, let's take a moment and talk about pleasures. What does it mean, life here in this world? And in exercise 4.3, you have eight different items here. Happiness, wine, rate these things one to ten. One least pleasurable, ten most pleasurable. How would you rate them? Happiness as least, one or ten the most. The wine cruise, lifetime membership to an executive company, exclusive country club, lifetime of meanings, love, social status, wealth, and wisdom. Okay? You don't have to tell me your answers, but... We'll look at your answers, and we'll get back to them soon. But let's take a step further now. The very fact that God takes an active role and an interest in the human being's punishment and decides that because you behave this way, you're going to get this, and because you behave this way, you get this, is a basic principle in one of the cardinal beliefs that Maimonides puts in Maimonides makes 13 principles of faith, one of them believing in the coming of Moshiach, one of them believing in one God, believing that the Torah is from Moshe. And one of the first, in fact, 11, principle number 11 from Maimonides, 
And as you can see in text number 1a on page 132, the 11th of the 13 principles of Jewish faith is that God, blessed be he, rewards those who observe the commandments and punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. So we're talking about Maimonides tells us about reward and punishment. When is Maimonides' reward and punishment referring to? Is he referring to the afterlife? Or is he referring to currently? And over here we see in text number 1b, Maimonides explains, the greatest reward is the pleasures of the world to come. So which one is it? The strongest punishment is to be cut off from the world to come. So really, when we talk about punishment and reward, first of all, they come in both forms. They come in physical and spiritual forms. However, as we see Maimonides clearly says here, what is the primary form of punishment and reward is in the afterlife in a form of spiritual. That means a wicked person eventually gets what he deserves. A righteous person eventually gets what they reserve. However, while reward and punishment is dispensed in both, the primary and ultimate reward and punishment is going to be in the afterlife. Why is this so? For a very obvious reason. What is more enjoyable when we talk about pleasure? A physical pleasure or a spiritual pleasure? Go back to the items that you just crossed off more and pleasurable in the world. What was your most, your most pleasurable things you've written? Was it a Hawaiian cruise? Or was it happiness? Happiness. Was it a lifetime membership in exclusive country club versus love, wisdom? Okay. So we see clearly that every human being, even in the most spiritual, even the most materialistic as we are in this world, we still appreciate spiritual, meaning emotional pleasures. Not necessarily is the physical pleasure, yes, we enjoy it, we don't mind having it, but if I have to put it on a scale from one to 10, what is more of a pleasure would be more of a spiritual pleasure versus a physical pleasure. For that exact same reason, when God rewards or punishes us, where is it going to take place? It's going to take place in a spiritual sphere because that's where it's felt. And ultimately, that's where you would see it and feel it and be part of it more. So if you get punished, how you change your, your punishment into... Oh, one second. Let's let's get we'll get one step at a time. First, let's find out what the punishment is. As we will see, so the spiritual pleasure in this world pales in comparison to physical pleasure or spiritual pleasure that's going to be or the heavenly counterparts how it's going to be in the world to come. So whatever emotional spiritual pleasure you enjoy here is nothing compared to the way the spiritual pleasure is going to be in the world to come. How we know that? We're going to get to that all in a moment. What is spiritual pleasure? Oh, we'll get now in this world, like emotional, like happiness, love, things like that. We'll take one step at a time. Okay. What we have so far is we know the concept of reward and punishment. But before we get to discuss the concept of reward and punishment, we have to address one other thing which is probably a common question which many ask and probably bothering you in the back of your mind, but sometimes afraid to ask, which is why do we even need the concept of reward and punishment? Does God really care 
that he has to look at what I did and punish me like a teacher in a classroom or reward me for what I did and what I didn't do? Does God, the infinite God who created the master of the universe, really make a difference of if I behave like this and therefore I'm going to get that and because I did this, I'm going to get that? Is he really keeping score? Are we really here in this world only to collect brownie points to be able to get God's a good, God's good side, to be able to get that reward? It sounds a little technical or it sounds a little minuscule or are we diminishing what God is all about? By making this God like this executive principle who is going to punish us if we behave or don't behave. Really? Is that what I'm here in this world for? Is that what God is all about? Is this the great God that we believe and pray to? Is that what he's busy all day making checks and excellence? Who's going to get punished? Who's going to get rewarded? Not only that, can we just be expected to do the right thing? If God put us here, doesn't he trust us to just behave and do what you got to do? Why do we have to have this threat? You don't behave, you're going to burn in hell. You be good, you go to heaven. Is that really what we do to serve God for? So on a simple level, one can argue and say the bottom line is we don't live in all, everybody doesn't live an altruistic life. We all have temptations, evil inclinations, and whatever it may be. And with that reward and punishment, there's no impetus, there's no motive, and therefore the reward and punishment are there to, so to speak, to keep us on the straight and narrow line. Because yes, ultimately we'd love the world to be an altruistic place, but the bottom line is, bottom line is, reality is that the world is not altruistic. We don't live in a world of altruism, and ultimately people don't do things the right way, and therefore we need to have some type of method to be able to keep them on the right and narrow track. But there is, however, a deeper understanding to this concept of reward and punishment. It's not just that God is busy making checks and X's. It's not that God is even looking to give reward and punishment. And there was a great commentator in the 13th century, an Italian rabbi, a Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Menachem Rakanti, and he puts it this way. Text number two. Do not consider the punishments described in the Torah as comparable to a penalty a person occurs for disobeying a decree of a mortal king. Not at all. Rather, they are completely natural consequences for one who fails to observe a Torah commandment is denied the good that naturally results from its observance. It is comparably to one who fails to sow his field and therefore cannot reap the harvest to one who fails to wear clothing and is then cold. It is a natural consequence as the warmth provided by the fire, the wetness of the water and the satiation of bread. It is the same way in the nature of each mitzvah to provide the positive consequence that are promised for its observance or the negative consequence that are stated regarding its transgression. Let's give an example. There are two ways how you can get something, okay? You work, you make money, and because of that, you're able to buy food. Now, does the work, the money, and the food all have a relationship? No. Because there are many people who work and don't get any money. There are many people who work and have money and don't use the money to buy food. Work doesn't necessarily translate to money. Money doesn't necessarily translate to food. 
However, what about taking it this way? If a farmer sows his field, what's the next automatic connecting point? He's able to reap. Once he's able to reap the field from the field, he's then able to make food. There is an automatic correlation in connection with any of these things. In scenario one, work and money don't necessarily have any relationship. In scenario two, it's an intrinsic connection. When you sow the field, then I can reap the field. I can't reap the field without sowing the field, and I won't sow a field if I'm not going to reap from it. Not everybody's a farmer. I'm using it as an example. What is he telling us? What is the example here? What is the Rikanti telling us? The same idea as when we talk about reward and punishment. When we follow God's commandments, or God forbid, disobey God's commandments, it is not because God says, okay, today you did a mitzvah, you're a good boy, you're getting a check and a mitzvah note, and therefore you're going to get rewarded, you're going to get a lolly at the end of the day. That's not what happens. Or if we disobey God's commandments, God says, okay, you misbehave, so therefore you're getting a slap on your wrist because you misbehave, and therefore we get punished. Absolutely not. When we do a mitzvah, the mitzvah is like the second scenario, just like the farmer. It's just like if I don't sow my field, I can't reap any benefits from it. I can't expect the rain to help me if I never planted any seeds. So if I plant the seed, the automatic progression is I'll have something to grow. It's not a reward that your weed is growing. It's a consequence. So now what I have over here is, what I have over here, a very good point. We're going to get to that in just a moment. The outcome of the behaviors that are mentioned in the Torah as reward and punishment are not reward and punishment. They're actually consequences. If you eat a healthy lifestyle, you're going to be healthy. If you do uh, go and smoke and drink and do everything else, you can expect not to be healthy. It's not getting punished for it. You are creating the scenario. So therefore, when we talk about from a deeper perspective, what we're saying over here is not that there's reward or punishment in Judaism. Our actions are simply natural consequences of our, or our actions cause consequences to what is going to be reward and punishment. Now, to your point, you brought up a very good point. Why then? And I'm not going to go into it in length. I'm just going to touch upon it. Why then? Do we say, first of all, we find many physical blessings that the Torah does give. For example, God says, if you shall do the mitzvahs, I'll give you the rain in its right time. So you talk about the rain running. Not only that, you see people who don't necessarily observe, but are getting rewarded, or people are observing and are not getting rewarded. So there's two, there's multiple answers to that. But just in short, number one is we don't see the reward and punishment. We don't see the consequences of the event. Meaning, you can see a person who is observing but he's maybe not wealthy and he looks like he's living a life of suffering, but in the afterlife, as we mentioned, the primary reward isn't in the world to come. There's a very well-known story, and I don't want to go too far into it, that's brought down in the Talmud, just to give you a little example into this scenario. The Talmud talks about a great scholar, if I recall correctly, his name was Shimon ben Shatach. He was a author of the Mishnah. And when he passed away, uh, the same day that he passed away, a very well-known miser atheist died as well. 
and the funerals were happening at the same time. And you can imagine that by the funeral of Shimon ben Shattach, the whole town came out to honor him. And by the miser atheist, barely his relatives came to, maybe not even his relatives came, you know, three people came to escort him to his final resting place. While they were taking the two beds to the funeral, they were attacked. In those days, it was very common because they would go outside the city limits to be able to go bury them. And they were attacked at the drop the people that they're burying, and they everybody ran off. An hour later, after the bandits left, everybody came back to bury the two people. It was a mix-up. The whole big procession went to the miser atheist, and the and the atheist and the rabbi was left with his only student who hid in the bushes while the bandits were there to bury him alone. And his student was very disturbed. The Talmud brings the story, and his student was very disturbed by it. Why are you telling him? He had a microphone, go call them. Everybody went, everybody came back and did it. And he was very disturbed by it. Until finally his teacher came to him in his dream and explained to him what happened. And he said, let me tell you. I was good. I was awarded a beautiful place in heaven. <clears throat> but because I did something wrong in the previous life, I had to be punished for it. And therefore, what was I punished? I heard two people arguing and I didn't stop them. And therefore my punishment was that I will have a shameful funeral. I got my punishment, so now when I come up to heaven, I'm clean and go straight to heaven. Why did the miser deserve such? Why a did the miser deserve such a beautiful funeral? Because once this miser was a butcher, and he had once a very big order for a wedding, and the wedding was canceled, so he was left with a bunch of meat, and he took all that meat and he gave it to poor people. One time he did a good thing; God had to reward him for it. His reward was that he had a beautiful funeral. But now he's in this place where he belongs. So we don't always see the full picture. That's the simple answer. There are other answers that are given as well. That at the same time, we do have an effect. That because the Torah does give us physical reward, we, through prayer and so on, can affect physical reward on ourselves as well. There is a story in the Talmud where there was a great uh, Rabbi Yeshua's wife. They were very poor. And she asked her husband, is this a way of Torah that we should be so poor? Why is it? And all of a sudden, a coin uh, from heaven, a hand came and gave her a silver, a gold, a gold leg of a table. And she went and she was about to go and sell it. And all of a sudden, she saw a vision that when they come on high, all the other scholars have four legs on their table and she has three legs. So she asked her husband, how come I only have three legs? She said, because you used one already in this world. So the concept of the afterlife and the physical and spiritual reward, we do find they complement, so to speak, each other. And just because you don't see it over here with the person, as you're saying, the rain didn't come, the rain may have come, or maybe that field was better off not being so. Okay, so while the Rikanti over here specifically is talking about material reward and punishment in the Torah, abundant wealth, this goes to all types of reward. But even in a, even in a deeper level, Text number three. In Ethics of Our Father, it says on page 135, the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. The retribution for a sin is a sin. Schar, mitzvah, mitzvah. What does that mean? So on a simple level, the commentators explain that the reward for a mitzvah is that when you do a mitzvah, I give you the opportunity to do another mitzvah. That the very fact that you did a mitzvah now, this opens up the avenue for you to go now and do Many more mitzvahs. The same thing as well as that when you do a transgression, the reward is, I mean, or the 
the, not the reward, the punishment, so to speak, is it opens up a landmine for you to start doing other transgressions. A lot of times when they do a mitzvah, we're going to get to just one of the words. It's like, yes, it's kind of like, oh, I already did one mitzvah, why do I have to do another Okay, mitzvah? so let's find out. Well, what about, well, what about the opposite? If somebody that goes and does the same, you know that he's sinning. So you say they're opening an avenue for him to continue. Correct, that's why it's called Avschar Avera, Avera, the reward yeah, so of why it. not to some way stop him? So that's exactly, the stopping is I don't do the first one. Yeah, but you already did it. If you already did it, then you have to find your strength within yourself to stop it because we're telling you, you start, it's in this slippery slope. It makes it easier to do it again. Well, that, exactly. It's because God gave you, it's God gave you an evil inclination and you have the freedom of choice to make that stop. But even if you have the freedom of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of choice, he, he kind of maneuvered it towards that direction. Well, that's because we live in a physical world and we're maneuvering towards doing the things wrong. Well, let's let's not get let's not get sidetracked. This is a whole separate discussion about but the freedom of choice and so on. But let's go back to our discussion. So, on a deeper level, the mission is telling us that the reward of the mitzvah and the punishment for a sin is not something outside the mitzvah and the avera, the mitzvah and the, the transgression, but the mitzvah itself is a natural consequence and constitute the reward itself. And the same thing would be the opposite way around. The transgression itself is what causes the punishment. In certain mitzvahs, we see it very clearly. For example, if a person is uh, a thief, not only is he punished by the court system, whether he is or he's not, but the bottom line is, he causes shame to himself, to his family. People don't trust him. There are many different things that by the very fact that you're doing something wrong, you're self-destructive. You don't have to, if, even if he's not caught, even if the very fact that he, people know that he is a thief, you don't have to be caught to be known that you're a thief or you're wrong what somebody wants, you're going to ruin your reputation. The same idea is, and it doesn't have to be the biggest punishment, the same idea is even in a relationship, you wrong the relationship, that person's not going to trust you anymore. So you yourself are creating a consequence by doing something wrong. The same idea also applies when it comes to rewards and punishment. When it comes to rewards and punishment in the afterlife, they are consequences. They are what we call, what we do in this world automatically creates the next world. Look in the uh, text number four from the Safas Emes. He says as follows. The fires of Gehinnom, which is hell, are stoked in direct proportion of the degree to which the wicked fan their fiery passion. Accordingly, we must say that the Ganeven, the paradise, heaven, is amplified by the tremendous passion that the righteous invest in their Torah study and the performance of God's commandments. They take great pleasure in the light in God himself, and their deeds generate the corresponding abundance of the light in Ganeven. Over here, this gives us a whole different perspective when we talk about afterlife. Afterlife is not an existing world that I go from here to there. It's what I create is exactly what's going to be there. So if I create in this world because of my behaviors and I stoke the flames and I add wood to that burning hell, then yes, it's going to be burning down there. But if through my actions, I then create a beautiful paradise, I'll be sitting in a beautiful paradise. So afterlife is really what we make of it. How do I know that? How do we create it? Okay. We'll get everything in just a moment. Uh, a different question. In your afterlife and in the afterlife and in the afterlife are the same thing. Who says it's the same? No. 
What one second? Who says it's the same? And who says he'll be together? If we're both doing the same type of mitzvahs and we get together and do the same mitzvahs, then maybe yes, but not necessarily. But let's take one step at a time and let's not rush it, okay? So what we see over here is the bottom line is the bottom line is that what we do is we're creating through our actions we are creating the afterlife. We are creating the hell and the heaven for ourselves. Let's take this a step further now. In Hebrew, Gehinnim, now that we know, Andy, we introduced the concept and the topic of what punishment and reward is, let's now talk about hell itself. What the topic of heaven and hell. And we'll start with hell, with hell. Judaism does believe in a form of hell. But it is radically different from the popular concept of what, is, what hell is. And for that reason, what do we translate hell to be in Hebrew? Gehinnim. What is Gehinnim? Just a little bit of context. The word Gehinnim, which we now commonly translate as hell, actually literally means the valley of the son of Hinnom. Where is that place? This is actually a valley which is near Jerusalem. It's first mentioned in Joshua chapter 15, verse 9, where it describes the border between Judea and Benjamin. And this is where a place where Jews who worshipped idols and sacrificed their children to the idols, they were then killed at that place. The prophets and the prophecies talk about it, and they want to show and they use this terminology of Gehinnom to say this is where the way people are punished for their sins. Rabbi? Yes. What did you say Gehenim actually meant? The valley of the son of Hinnom. The S-O-N. S-O-N, son of Hinnom. H-I-N-O-M. Okay. That was the name of the place. Where it was, it was a valley near Jerusalem. And historically, that was a place where many idolaters were killed for their terrible behavior. The prophets use this terminology, and then we find this again used in the Talmud and throughout the Jewish text as hell, referred to as hell because this is the place where evil, so to speak, a, depicts the concept of evil finding and meeting out their punishment. But when we talk about hell, sorry? Were Jews sacrificed? Yeah, we were talking about Jews, that, that's why they were punished. So when we talk about hell, hell, hell is generally thought of as a punishment for bad behavior. Correct? And therefore, where sinners are condemned to internal tamination. We talk about the furnaces of purgatory. And sometimes when we think about it, it sounds a little disturbing. How does that work out? And while vengeful punishment may be something which humans are happy with, it doesn't sound right for God. God is not a vengeful. God doesn't look to be able to destroy, to hurt, to get rid of. And therefore, when we talk about hell, it can mean us, leave us with uninspired, say, okay, fine, I don't want to end up there, but how do I know it's there? What is it? What is it all about? Why is it? And therefore, Judaism says, no, it's Gehinnom. What is Gehinnom? Gehinnom is, in Jewish view, Gehinnom is not a place, as we can see here, of eternal damnation, but Gehinnom is more of rehabilitation. 
What does it mean is rehabilitation, as we'll see soon? That the eventual destination of the soul is ultimately in heaven, in paradise. But in order to get into have, have paradise, it needs a little rehab. Thanks. And the rehab... Beautiful picture. <laughs> sorry? And the rehab, let me just mute. Is loud? Just give me one second. And the rehab is for the soul in order for it to make it into heaven. Now the question is, why does the soul need rehabilitation? That's because every one of our actions that we do in this world, regardless of what it is, has an effect of what we do. For example, when we give charity, let's take that example, it's an easy example. Charity positively affects us. We feel good about giving charity. We feel good about helping another person. The balance is, when do I know am I doing it for myself or am I doing it for the other person? Now, I always have to help that other person. But when do I say, okay, I don't want to help that person anymore. Or I've helped enough. I don't want to help anymore, whatever it may be. And many times, we start to mix our own personality in it. So while we've given charity and then we say, oh, I don't want to give it anymore. Is that right? Is it wrong? At the end of the day, it has an effect. And oh, therefore, yeah. sorry? Yeah. Though giving charity is a wonderful thing, and the more we give, it changes who we are. If we continue, let's say we spoke about this, in fact, it's an interesting thing that's talked about in Hasidic discourses, that there's three types of people. There's a person who intellectually understands that giving charity is good, and that's why he gives charity. There's a person who's naturally kind, and that's why he gives charity. And then there's a person who's not naturally kind, but because they want to become naturally kind, they give charity. And that's in a way the greatest level. That's called victory, because you're able to transform. Yeah, that's not your fault if you become like, if you try to become naturally kind. What if you really are? Naturally? Well, that's wonderful, but it's a higher level. That means you can always become better. So different than natural. Try maybe it's not really natural inside. Not necessarily. On the contrary. Some people come from a level of guru, which is strength, and they're more tight. And even though it's a good thing, they don't want to be, uh, they're not, so to speak, they're not generous with themselves, or they're not generous with other people. But what happens when a person continues to do a certain type of act? The more you do something, the more it becomes part of you. The same is also the opposite. Sadly, the more we become, and this is going back to what you mentioned before, the more I become obsessed with something negative or positive, it has an effect on who I am. And because of that, negative actions have an impact on ourselves and drag us down. Negative vibes, negative behaviors, negative attitudes, all the negativity, name it what you want, is going to affect you. And because of that, our souls are affected by the action and the spiritual care that we are meant to give our souls, which is, as we recall last week, we spoke about that our souls were given to us on loan from God. We now have tainted these souls. And in order for these tainted souls and the corruption that it's gone through, it needs to be refined. I'll speak for myself. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. And some of our actions have distanced us from God. And therefore, some of our actions have distanced us to the effect that we therefore don't have the 100% capacity 
to experience an absolute spiritual revelation of godliness. Therefore, paradise can happen immediately. Why? Because what is paradise? Paradise is that I'm 100% in my faculties, understanding and appreciating the greatest level of godliness. And the only way I can get to paradise is if I have the rehabilitation of gain. So for the majority of us, we need an intermediate stage, a rehabilitation, which is called Gehenna. The Talmud tells us a fascinating story. And I'm sure I said the story once before. I said it, of course, on Yom Kippur, but we can see it inside here. The Talmud tells us a story about a fellow by the name of Acher. Acher literally means the other, the other guy. The reason why he was called the other guy, because his name initially, his name was really Elisha Ben-Avuya. Elisha Ben-Avuya, just to give you about who he was, he was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva. That means he learned together with Rabbi Akiva. He was the teacher of Rabbi Meir. That means the author of almost every Mishnah, Rabbi Meir, his teacher was Elisha Ben-Avuya. He was one of the greatest Jewish scholars in the second era, in the second century of the common era. And at some point in his life, Elisha ben Abuya underwent a drastic change where he became a heretic, a moral degenerate, a traitor, and actively aiding and abetting the murderous, the murderous Roman regime. And he truly became, and that's why the Mishnah called him Acher. Just, just happened? Yeah, he was called Acher according to some commentaries was because he tried going too deep into the mystics and that's what happened. But we're not going into why, we're talking about how, what happened. His name was Elisha ben Avuya, and he was called, in the Mishnah, they would call him Acher. He was so, even once he became a murderer, even once he became this type of individual, he still knew the Talmud and the Torah of Jewish law to the extent when he would be studying with a student, Rabbi Meir, he would tell Rabbi Meir, you can't walk any further while he was riding on his horse, because here's the Tchum Shabbos, here's the Mount you're allowed to walk on Shabbos. But he was really someone else because he true fell from the greatest of heights to the lowest of depths. And the Talmud describes his death and the events that followed his death. Text number five. Elisha ben Avuya was a former Mishnahic age who turned to such public heresy and treachery that he was derogatorily named Acher, something else. When Achar died, the heavenly court declared, we will not afflict him with judgment to Gehinnom, nor will we permit him into paradise. The reasoning, we will not afflict him with the judgment because he studied much Torah, but will not permit him to enter paradise because he sinned egregiously. Achar's former disciple, Rabbi Meir, said, better that he indeed be judged and punished so that he may enter paradise. What happened here? Achar was stuck. Even hell wouldn't let him in. Gehenim would have let him out. He couldn't go into Gehenim. He couldn't go into Ganeidim. He couldn't go into paradise. What you see over here is that his Torah still protected him from being scourged in Gehenim. He was in worse trouble there. He was in worse trouble because he couldn't get into not Gehenim yeah. and not Ganeidim and not paradise. Not Rabbi Meir then promised when he died that he would intercede by the heavenly court when Rabbi Meir goes up on high when he passes on that his teacher, Acher, be admitted in Gehinnom. Imagine this. Due to his love to his teacher, he said, I'm going to get you into hell. 
One second. He knew that he had sinned, and therefore he had to go through it, and he was giving him the opportunity to repent for his soul to be a rebuilder. We're going to get to it in a moment. What do we see from this? What do we see from this? What function does Gehinnom have? Why did Rabbi Meir want him to go into Gehinnom? He couldn't go into Gehinnom. He couldn't go into paradise because he sinned. He needed him to be rehabilitated. But on the other hand, he was like in the slingshot. He was not here, not there. So he prayed that he get into hell. Just a little commentary on the story. Just a little bit to tell you a little further in the story. Rabbi Meir, before he died, he said, I'm going to pray so much to get him into hell that you will see from his grave smoke coming. When Rabbi Meir died, a few days later, they saw smoke coming from the grave of Acher. 150 years there was smoke coming from his grave until Rabbi Yochanan Manzake came along and said, I will pray that he now moved from hell to paradise. And when Rabbi Yochanan Manzake passed away, then the smoke ceased. I think it's saying that then the soul was reborn to overcome what, uh, what he did before. Oh, we're going to get to because One second. Let's. That one. Oh, we're going to get to everything in just a moment. We're going to talk about reincarnation next week. But now we're talking about hell and heaven. So what do we see from here? What do we see from the story? What am I pointing out? Is that Gehinnom is not the ultimate destination. It's not eternal damnation. Actually, what's the worst thing Gehinnom? Limbo. Not here, not there. You know, sometimes even if you're in a bad company, at least you're in company. But if you don't have any company, loneliness. It was not here, not there. And what was Gehinnom? It was a cleansing process. It was a rehabilitation for his soul. In order for his soul and in order for our soul to experience paradise, we need to go through that rehabilitation. So in essence, Gehinnom is a blessing. It's not a destination. It's a transition. As in the words of Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liabi, the first Chabad Rebbe, as he says in Torah, or text number six, the purpose of Gehinnom is to refine the soul and rid of any sickness if that it contracted. This is similar to the process of smelting silver. We are in the dross of the sediment that's burnt away in the furnace, leaving the silver clean and free of impurities. Similarly, for the soul to be able to experience the light of the supernal pleasures and bask in God's radiance, it must be refined in the spiritual fire of Gehinnom, whereby the negative is purged from the positive. So what do we see now? What would you better say Gehinnom is if it's not a destination? Gehinnom is a soul rehabilitation, which now we've seen what we would call more Gehinnom is a soul catharsis, where the soul experiences the negative actions that it's done in this world. Ultimately, this painful process of the fire of Gehinnom cleans it and then gives it the opportunity that the soul is now able to enter paradise. Let's see it in text number seven. Then an individual would also see himself in a new light. Even in our mortal physical state, looking at oneself is sometimes pleasing and other times very painful. Imagine standing naked before God with your memory wide open, completely transparent without any jamming mechanism or reduced valve to diminish its force. You will remember everything you ever did. You will see it in the light of an unshaded spirit. Or if you will, in God's own light, 
that shines from one end to the creation of the other. The memory of every good deed and mitzvah will be sublimus, sublimus of pleasures, but your memory will also be open to all things that you are ashamed. They cannot be rationalized anyway or dismissed. You will be facing yourself fully aware of the consequences of all your deeds. We all know the terrible shame and humiliation experience when one is caught in the act of doing something wrong. Imagine being caught by one's own memory with no place to escape. A number of our great teachers write that the fire of Gehinnom is actually the burning shame one experiences of one's sin. It's not a real fire that you see, you know? It's you feel the shame, your face burning up. One, of course, these concepts used by the sages may also certain deeper mysteries of meanings. But a major ingredient of this fire may be shame. How else could one characterize the agony of unconcealed shame upon a soul? We are taught that the judgment of the wicked lasts 12 months. The pain eventually subsides. And that's why, if you notice, that generally, when a person's memory um, begins to fade after 12 months as well, that's why Kaddish says, I'm going to get to that in a moment, as the memory of something fades. What we see over here is, take the human relationship as an analogy. Many people, especially when they get older in life, have difficulty having relationships, whether it's because of self-centeredness, they don't know how to share, they don't know how to compromise, regardless of what it is. And the moment they look into the mirror and they start asking themselves the question, why, what, where? Why do they ignore it? Why do they not want to face it? Because they get ashamed. They become self-blame. They start putting it on themselves, saying, look what I'm incapable of. And therefore, it's painful. But what's the advantage? It's healing. You know why there's a mitzvah to confess your sins? On Yom Kippur, we say, I'll hate for the sin that I have sinned. Because the moment I verbalize something, the moment I say something, I'm already halfway there in acknowledging what I've done wrong to be able to correct it. But the more I continue to hide myself from what I've done, I'll never be able to confront the demons or the devil within me, so to speak. That's why we do it every day. Similarly, the same thing as Gehinnom is the cleansing process. The soul's experiencing all the negative actions it did in this world. It's coming up at it. That means everything you've done in the world for your life of 120 years is now all coming right in front of you, posted on this big neon banner and saying, look what you did. And you're burning in shame. How in the world did I do these things? Am I not embarrassed? It's not a vengeful punishment. It's not attacking you. It's reality. You see it happening in front of your face. It's the cleansing process. You're bringing it up all in your system. You're saying it. You're seeing it. And it cleanses the individual. That's a whole separate story, but yeah. But while the truth you'll say never hurts, truth always hurts. It's a healing. It cleans the soul from everything that it collected in this world. Though it suffers, though it's painful, that's why it's called Gehenna. 
But once it goes on with the process, at the conclusion of the process, what happens? The soul's clean. You know, when you go for a massage or you go for, what are they, a deep face cleansing, it hurts. It's painful while they're getting all those blackheads out of you. But at the same time, eventually, you feel clean, happy, refreshed. This person goes to them. Correct. And at the, we'll get to it in a moment. At the end, the soul gets rid of all its foreign items, all the extras that you have, and now the soul is free to experience paradise. Now, how long does Gehenna for then? How long does this process take? How long will I have to go through the suffering tribulation? And we know Gehenna is not an eternal damnation that we already came to. So there's a maximum sentence, and then there is a little bit less. Let's see. Text number eight. The maximum sentence for the wicked is 12 months. At the conclusion of this time, even the most sinful souls make it into paradise. Why? Because as we mentioned, Gehenna is a phase. It's not a destination. So even an evil person goes through that phase of 12 months of retribution. Let me finish this point and we'll get to all the questions in just a moment because I know you're going to have a lot of questions. So, because Gehenna is only a phase, not a destination, every soul ultimately reaches its destination in paradise. Now, you can ask me, really? Every single person? Text number nine. Each member of the Jewish people has a portion in the world to come. As it is stated, your people are righteous. They shall inherit your land forever. They are the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, in which I take pride. This is true for every single person, regardless of their level of piety or religious observance. The only people that don't have a portion in the world to come are people that deny in its existence. The only people, and it gives over there, I think, three other cases of people that don't have a portion in the world to come. But in this case that we're talking about, as we are looking at it, is that every single person, after they go through the purgatory and the cleansing and the rehabilitation of their soul, they can make it into paradise. But guess what? You don't have to wait for hell. You don't have to wait for the next world to make it to heaven. Even in this world, we have a way to purge those sins from ourselves. And that is called teshuva. Teshuva, which means repentance, returning. Teshuva is the rehabilitation of the soul. Sincere teshuva, sincere repentance in this world can cleanse us that we can avoid any long duration of, of, of purgatory of Gehinnom. So there is Gehinnom, which is for the soul that doesn't cleanse itself in this world. For a soul that cleanses itself in this world, once it comes there, it shortens the time, of course, of how long we'll have to go through. But what about paradise? Now that we spoke so much about Gehinnom, so much about hell, what about heaven? What does our soul experience there? What really happens there? So, before we attempt to understand what the spiritual pleasure is, we need a little disclaimer from the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel lived in the 15th century. He was a born in Lisbon, Portugal, served as a minister of the King Alfonso V of Portugal. He wrote a commentary on the Talmud, I mean, on the uh, Torah, and here's what he says, text number 10. Spiritual reward 
is an abstruse and difficult for mortal intellect to visualize and grasp as long as intellect remains attached to the corporal body. Just the one who's blind cannot grasp the concept of colors. So to the spirit that is engaged with corporality cannot grasp purely spiritual matters. Try explaining colors to a blind person. Now I'm talking to a person who has never seen before, not a person who's seen and then became blind. A person who's been always blind cannot, you can't explain to him colors. He'll understand shades, will understand that there are differences, but he will never understand the difference between blue and red. will never tell you which one matches, which one doesn't match. Why? Because they can't relate to it. So too, our physical, we are blind to what spirituality is. And therefore, the most that I can explain to you what spirituality is, it's like those two twins that were in utero trying to think about what the world is when they come into it. Zero clue. There's no way we can relate to it. Because we've never experienced it. We don't know what it is. As long as we are attached to a physical body, I cannot describe or appreciate to the fullest extent what spiritual pleasure is. The pure spiritual experience and pleasure of paradise cannot be comprehended by the human individual. We can give parables. We can explain. I can give you 13 different examples and stories and everything else. But they'll all be metaphors, and they'll all be parables. They will not come or scratch the surface of what spiritual paradise is. Let's see how the Talmud puts it. Text number 11. In the hereafter, there is no eating, no drinking, procreation, commerce, jealousy, hatred, competition. Rather, the righteous sit, their heads adorned with crowns, and they delight in the radiance of divine presence. What does it mean, pleasure? What did you write about in your first, when we first asked, what does pleasure mean? There are many different types of pleasures. Pleasure begins in infancy. When you're a child, pleasure can mean a lollipop. When you get a little older as a teenager, and maybe it's a stash of cash. And when you get a little older, maybe it's a nice car. When you get a little older and your creativity and your imagination grows, and so does your pleasure grow with its imagination. It can go from toy blocks to nice cups of wine to whatever it may be. But one of the most exquisite pleasures that no person will deny is an intimate relationship. Why? A relationship is something that you can have another fellow human being with you, at you, at all times. Somebody to speak to, somebody to confide in, somebody you want to talk to. It doesn't make a difference who that person may be, but somebody that's at your, I don't want to call it beck and call, but somebody that's can cuddle you, something that can be with you in that relationship. To be able to develop and envelope yourself and connect. The mitzvahs that we do are exactly that. Doing a mitzvah creates an intimate bond with God. The, doing a mitzvah, down here, it affects maybe be concealed physically in our existence, and therefore we don't, it doesn't allow us to appreciate it. But what it does, it has the deepest connection, which is then materialized and realized in paradise, in heaven. So what is heaven? What is paradise? How does it, how do, what is that spiritual pleasure? 
It is not about jealousy. It's not about acrimony. It's not about eating. It's not about drinking. It's the intimate relationship that you have with God. Like you started off saying, you're with God. The greatest pleasure that you can imagine of a human relationship, quadruple times it, whatever it may be, is the closeness that the human relationship has and intensifies with God in the ultimate love. That is the ultimate pleasure. The ultimate pleasure is the soul's pleasure to be connected with its source in the most divine and real way. And how is that done? Because what does the word mitzvah mean? Mitzvah means commandment, but also comes from the word connection. And every single time we do a mitzvah, what we're doing is we're creating a bond, a connection, a relationship, intensifying it. And when do we see the realization of that relationship? That's what happens. So it's not about brownie points. It's not about this big, beautiful gold armchair and having the steak dinner up in heaven. It's about the relationship that you and God become one. And that is done through the mitzvah. Now, research has shown that oftentimes after the death of a, lo- after the death of a loved one, Many close relatives suffer from depression. Many, and not even that, some of them even have PTSD. And for years, psychology has grappled with the question, do religious and spiritual beliefs, huh? That means post-traumatic stress disorder, but they keep on thinking about it. For years, psychology researchers grappled with the question, does spirituality and the spiritual beliefs of religious beliefs and belief in the afterlife in specific help and influence a person coping with bereavement. And here's a study from 2007, which they did 30, they reviewed 32 scientific studies published from 1990 to 2005, containing data of 5,715 people who had suffered from a loss of a loved one and they came up with mixed but telling results that we can see from here. 22 studies reported positive effects in spiritual and religious beliefs. Six reported limited positive. You can see this figure that I'm telling you now is in 4.1 on page 144. And two reported no positive effects of religion. One study reported some negative. So what we see from here is 94% had some positive effects. Religion was a source of strength. Belief in the afterlife helps with the grieving grieving process. So one of our questions that we asked today in the beginning of our class, what's the purpose of knowing about the afterlife? One simple psychological benefit is that it helps with the grieving process. Knowing that the soul is in a place where it's being rehabilitated and eventually going to make it to heaven helps the people down here feel better and grieve and are able to overcome their needs. So what we see over here is how religion, A, gives a source of strength to people, and that's why during times of trying times when people seek out religion, I remember when I first moved there, um, how many years ago was that? 19 years ago already, wow. 19 years ago I moved out here was the year after 9-11, right? So I think that's 19 years ago. This year's gonna be 20 years, yeah. So right after 9-11, and when I first moved out here, I was going around knocking on people's doors, more offices, I should say, 
And the only way if I knew they were Jewish, if they had a Jewish name on the outside. And who are the people that hang their Jewish names on the outside? Usually doctors, lawyers, everybody else, you know, has other names. So there was a fellow, I knocked on his door and he lets me in, totally secular Jew. And he tells me, you know, generally I probably wouldn't have opened the door for you or let you in, would have told the secretary where to go, whatever. So, uh, but either it's 9-11, that's why I remember it was Friday after 9-11, he says, either it's 9-11 or I'm getting older, and therefore I decided it's good to speak to a rabbi. And, and until he passed, we used to learn at least once a month together, and we became good friends. But <clears throat> what it was, and he wasn't that old, he passed at a young age, but uh, interesting that he, the concept of that religion is a source of strength for people in trying times, and the very fact that they believe in the afterlife, that in itself helps them go through the grieving process. And we also find, and this you will find that people, I hear it from you, sometimes you're born into it, you don't even realize it, that people who look at religious people, and this I heard from a doctor who uh, deals with, uh, an oncologist who deals with, with um, cancer patients, in fact, pediatric oncologist said that she has seen, and one of the things that attracted her to religion, that she has seen that religious children automatically were happier people, even though they were going through the different stages of their cancer, what it may be. Religion in itself gives a person a sense of optimism. Religion and spirituality give us a basic foundation of hope and optimism and knowing about the afterlife, that in itself gives us and ingrains us with a level of optimism because we're significantly optimistic because we know it's not about all the doom and gloom. We know we're not going to burn in hell forever. We'll go through rehabilitation and then everything will be fine and then we'll be sitting at a party. But just as no two individuals experience the physical world in the same two, in the same way, so too when it comes to heaven, no two souls experience in the same way. And therefore paradise is not a monolithic world but it's compromised of a myriad of levels, many different levels, as we explained. And therefore, at every single entry point of the soul's destination and rehabilitation, it may experience a different level of paradise, as we can see. In paradise, the soul continues to escalate. And as we know that every single year, the soul on its yard site, on the date of passing, escalates and elevates and goes to the next level. And the soul is in a constant level of moving. That's why a soul is called a mahalich. It's constantly progressing. And every single year on the day of the yard site, it makes a quantum leap. And that's why it's a celebration. You'll notice on the day of the yard site, people make a kiddish. They say l'chayim. And even in some synagogues, they don't say tachnun. It's considered a holiday. Because the day of the yard site for the soul unimaginable what it reaches another and higher level in its levels of heaven. However, as we explained, while paradise may be the most pleasurable place for the soul, and while paradise may be a wonderful place that the soul is enjoying, the bottom line is, can it do a mitzvah? No. Can the soul give charity in paradise? No. Can it study Torah? No. Can it do all the things that we do here? Absolutely not. That's why, if you know, in the Yisker prayer, when we say it, what do we do? What do we say by the Yisker prayer? That I am giving to charity and the merit of this soul. Why? Because the soul can't do it on their own. We are the hands and feet of the soul. So the soul itself can't do anything. Correct. Only the people who are left behind can do it. Correct. That's what we're soon going to see in a moment. 
And therefore, we do, we are the intervention, we are the mechanism to make the soul go from place to place. Every good deed that we do in the memory of that soul automatically has an effect on the soul. And here's the interesting thing. The family, as we're soon going to see in the next paragraph that we're going to read, the family, when it does something, it's an automatic connection because the family is related and therefore automatically helps the soul escalate. When another person does it, but that's not family, they should say in memory of this person because then it'll be an elevation for the soul. See in text number 12. When an individual acts righteously, page 146, and are outstanding in the service of the creator, they generate tremendous merit for their soul's parents. Their merits is simply by virtue of their parents having served as instruments of their birth. It is their parents who enable their soul to be born in this world, which in turn enable the many righteous deeds they perform. The parents, therefore, have a share in their meritorious acts. However, anyone's charity or prayers on behalf of a departed person beneficial for the soul of the deceased is therefore a Jewish custom to give to charity to do other good deeds on behalf of the deceased in order to cause satisfaction to the soul. Rashi over here says clearly the difference between if you are a prerogative of that individual, the very fact that your parents gave birth to you, they have an intrinsic connection to you, like it or not, and therefore when you do something, it automatically affects them. You do a positive mitzvah in this world, it automatically affects the soul of the higher world. When somebody else does it, it is also wonderful, but they should say it's in the memory of that person. Their way, this way, they can, they can have an effect on that person's soul. It's it's a spiritual. It's infinite. In fact, one of the things it says. What do you mean? Everywhere you are, you're experiencing it. We you missed what we said before. Every single part of paradise is not one place. It's multi-tiered. In heaven itself, I can always reach higher, but I'm still there. You said it's infinite. Of course. But whatever level I'm at is a level of paradise. It says, Sadiqim, to the words of the Talmud says, Sadiqim, the righteous, never have any peace. Because it says, The stronger I get, the more I want. And therefore, the stronger, the higher they go, the higher the place they go. God is infinite. And if my intimate relationship with God is infinite, if God is infinite, then my in, what is paradise? Remember, what is paradise? To sit with Hashem. To, sit, to have a relationship with Hashem. So then how do you get there? Because the relate by infinite. what? How do you get there? What do you mean get? What is a relationship? Do I get to a relationship or a relationship becomes stronger and stronger the more I get to know the person? Let's take it in a physical way. What is a relationship? Is a relationship okay? I put the ring on the person and we're done. And I got there. It's an emotional pond that I continue to climb, continue to cultivate, and I continue to appreciate. It gets strong. So just like in a relationship of a human being, that relationship continues to get cultivated. So too in the relationship with God, it starts off at A. And once I get A, the relationship gets stronger and stronger. And if God is infinite, then the relationship is and the more I get closer, and the more I get do more for that um, soul, the greater and the higher it becomes. Oh, we're going to get them just in just, that's the next step. Yes, what's your question? No, no, you'll find that's the next part we're about to say. Before we go to the next part, can it, can it also decrease? Like human relationships can fade away? You're saying, can the soul go down? Yeah. 
Not necessarily, but we're going to talk about when we talk about reincarnation, we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, Generally, not. What? what level does that have to matter? We'll get to in a second. Can't go into like no, we'll one second. <laughs> okay, so when's the most crucial? Uh, so, what are we? So, getting to the next point, what's the most crucial time to engage in actions to help the soul elevate? What are the auspicious times? Is number one the first 12 months of a person's passing? As we explained, that a soul is judged for 12 months. So therefore the most important time for a soul is after the first 12 months of passing, then is the soul's most crucial time. And therefore to do the most mitzvahs and things that we can do to augment or to put it in the soul's, so to speak, benefit. And the sooner more mitzvahs we can do, the sooner we can get that soul out of Gehenna. Number two is on the yard site. The yard site's the time when we help the soul reach and make that quantum leap from level to level. Then we also have on holidays, there's something called the Yisker prayer. What are we doing by Yisker? Five times a year Yisker is said when we mention the soul and because of that we say, um, do different things for the soul and they like giving charity and therefore if you look in figure 4.2, you're going to ask me what are things we can do for our soul? So you have over here, um, page 147, important concepts. Number one, donate to charity. Number two, attend Yisker services and pledge in their memory, like lighting a candle. That's why we light a candle, because a candle is to remember the soul. Study Torah, especially Mishnah, which is the same letters as Mishnayis. Provide financial support to Torah students that are learning. Sponsor a Torah class. Sponsor donate Torah books or Jewish practices to a synagogue or library. And write a Torah scroll in the deceased honor. Any of these mitzvahs done our, ben our benefit and a merit for the soul, especially if, and especially as the good deeds and these things are encouraged to do, especially if it was in your will or his will that were those to the deceased to do it. Therefore, we also find on the customs that are done on a yard site. On the yard site, there are customs which are, for example, light a twenty-four, or light a candle reciting Kaddish, visiting the grave, donating to charity, studying Torah, receiving an aliyah, sponsoring a Kiddush, bringing friends and family together to talk about the deceased. All these things are there to elevate the soul. Now, one of the things, and this is one of the greatest myths I can probably say, is when we talk about once, one of the most well-known Jewish mourning customs is the recital of Kaddish. Now, any person that's ever read the Kaddish will notice that there is nothing in the Kaddish that says mourning in it. It's called the mourner's Kaddish, but there's nothing in it that mentions the word mourning. What is the Kaddish? The Kaddish is a proclamation of God's greatness and holiness. So why then is it called the mourner's Kaddish? Why then is it a custom that the children recite the Kaddish for 11 months after the person passed? And the reason is, and again, an annually on the earth site. And the reason is, it is for the merit of the soul that it should be elevated and it should be able to go from level to level and get out of rehab and make it into heaven. Let's look at the words of the Kaddish. Exalted and hallowed be his great name. Throughout the world he has created according to his will, may establish his kingship, bring forth his redemption and hasten the coming of Moshiach. In your lifetime, in your days, in the lifetime of the entire house of Israel, speedily and soon, say Amen. May his great name be blessed forever and ever and all eternity. 
blessed and praised, glorified, exalted and extolled, honored and adored and lauded, and by the name of the Holy One, blessed be he. Beyond all the blessings, hymns, praises, and consolations that are uttered in the world, may the abundant be peace in heaven, good alike and for all of Israel, and let us say amen. He who makes peace in heaven may make peace for us and all of Israel, and let us say amen. So why is the Kaddish so important? If there's nothing, what? That was text 13 on page 141. Why is it so important? Why is the Kaddish so important? Why is it recited specifically by the mourner? And why then this following text? So why then? Where does it say in the Kaddish Hashem is a true judge? Can you show me that? So that's when the person passes. But what about for 11 months? Why is he saying Kaddish? What is, you're not saying anything in the Kaddish that Hashem is a true judge. You're only talking about, about how great God is. So what are you trying to say? So let's see text number 14. This is from Rabbi Adin Evan Israel who just recently passed away, he says as follows. Look what he says. Every member of the community of Israel is in a sense among those who establish and proclaim God's sovereignty over the world. As the verse says, you are my witness, my God declares. Therefore, the absence of any individual creates a void, as it were, in God's sovereignty in the world. In order to fill the void, others need to intensify their work and proclaim on their behalf, as well as on behalf of the deceased, exalted and hallowed be his great name. With this perspective, we can understand why reciting the Kaddish elevates the soul of the deceased. Listen closely. The aggregate of the person's actions and accomplishments in this world define his or her life. However, the tally of a person's achievements does not necessarily conclude at the moment of death. A complete evaluation of a person's accomplishments must also include all that is accomplished as a result of the person's inspirations and actions. Therefore, when those who remain alive, and especially the children's children, the person's children and descendants, whose very existence is a credit to their forebears, do good deeds, they contribute to the descendant's balance of accomplishments. For although the deceased is no longer active in this world, his or her actions continue to inspire positive actions and deeds. That is why. The recitation of Kaddish elevates the soul because God is being exalted in this world as a result and in the name of the deceased. I want to share with you a story that takes what he's just said a step further. There was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yitzchel Gansberg. He was a chassid, lived in Israel at first and then eventually became um, moved to America. And in 1960, while he was working in the kibbutzim in a place called Ta'anach at the time, in kindergartens and teaching children, and he would have to leave very early in the morning to make it to leave from Kfar Chabad to make it to the kibbutz and to make it to the city in Ta'anach. And because he would leave so early in Ta'anach, there was no minyan. And there was no place for him to say Kaddish when his father passed away. And when he would come back late at night, or the only place that would have been able to have two Kaddish at night, was also in a minion which was quasi minion they died very early the evening service it wasn't dark yet and there was a lot of other halachic issues and he didn't know what to do he was willing to give up the job that he had in Tanakh so that he should be able to say Kaddish for his father and he wrote to the Rebbe his predicament this was in 1960 and the Rebbe responded to him in 25 Nisan 57 20 1960 the Rebbe told him why are you saying Kaddish you say Kaddish 
because you are showing that the person that passed on left somebody in this world who is exalting God's name, who's making God's name great. And therefore, it's a benefit for that soul. What greater pleasure can there be for the soul that their descendant is teaching a bunch of Jewish children words of Torah? That is even greater than the Kaddish that you're going to say. And therefore, the Rebbe told them, don't quit your job. When you get back home, you'll say Mishnayis, which then you'll be able to say the Kaddish, and that will be the Kaddish that you'll have to say. What would the Rebbe was saying? And what is this telling us? The recitation of Kaddish and mitzvahs that we do in this world, even more important than just saying the words of Kaddish is understanding what we're doing, is that God's name be exalted, that God's name be taught, that mitzvahs be accomplished, that good deeds be done. If I'm going to say Kaddish and meanwhile run four people over when I get to say Kaddish, I've done nothing. If my saying Kaddish is going to be able to going to be hurting people or going to be destructive, getting to a fight and a person in the shul, whatever it may be, then your Kaddish is not only productive but destructive. The idea of Kaddish is that the soul can say and turn to the heavenly court and say rehab can be over sooner because look, my paragony is making a difference. They're doing something, whether they're learning, giving charity, saying Kaddish, whatever it may be. This helps the soul go through the therapy that's needed. Because again, the only thing that can help the soul in the world above is the physical action that we do here. Why not continue? Because once after the 12 months, they're for sure out of the end and they already made it. And the only thing that we can help them with is on the day of the yard site to help them make that quantum leap. But still, but to get to your point, we don't need the Kaddish to be said. We still continue to do mitzvahs in their memory, even not, even after the 11 months. And therefore you'll find people will donate something in memory of somebody. Why? Because we, at any time there is something in memory of that person, that is a constant reminder that this person's soul is forever eternalized. What does it mean eternalized? That there's somebody that was doing something for this soul that they should continue to go up a level and level. Is the 12 months here the same as 12 months there? It goes by because it's dependent on our physical action, so therefore, yes. There is still time and space for the soul, and that's why, just an interesting side note, even a soul on its birthday celebrates its birthday on nine. Yes. Why only for 11 months if they're there for 12 months? That's a very good question. Because we believe that only true evil people are there for 12 months, and most Jews are not on the level of true evil, and that's why by 11 months they already finished being judged. That means they're only judged for 11 months, but they can be in Gehinnom for 12 months. Because it's helping them reach that quantum leap that we want them to make. Because every every day they go another level, but the yard site gets them over the next hump to make it to the next level. Why is the yard site more important than the person's uh, birthday? More the deceased's birthday. Because the yard site is the time that the soul relates when it sees its connection or its connection to this physical world. The birthday of the soul comes to the baby before it's born, right? Okay. No, Rabbi? Yes. Go ahead. 
One uh, second here. You said of the donating of Sefer uh, Torah or do anything with it, but that's itself takes here, so that's already after. But even every moment, well, let's say, give you an example of writing a Sefer Torah. Many families have a custom that they donate a Sefer Torah. It takes a year. The reason why they do a donated Sefer Torah is so that every single day another mitzvah, because every time you write a letter, it's a mitzvah of writing the Torah, and every letter that's written for that Torah, that's why a lot of people choose a Torah, because it's 600,000 mitzvahs that are done for that soul. But what about those who can't afford it? So then you don't do it. There's no obligation. There's no obligation to donate a Sefer Torah. There's an obligation to own a letter in the Sefer Torah. If you have a letter in the Sefer Torah, you're good. And if you donate a letter, for example, before you That's something else. It's different mitzvahs. Every what? single day, doing a mitzvah, giving, doing, putting on tefillin, lighting Shabbos candles, all those mitzvahs are again. Yes, somebody from here was asking a question. Was it Liz? It's Marin. Marin, I'm sorry. What, what happens if someone doesn't have children or their children may have died and, you know, you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, but very there's good no question. more children left? A very good question. One of the things that we find in Jewish laws, if the... And I think we mentioned in the previous class that the very fact that the deceased writes in their will that somebody should do it for them or that they hire somebody before they pass that somebody should do it for them, even if it's not there because that person now has been charged with a mission to do it for that family. I'm sorry. To do it for that person. Because they were charged to do it for that person, and that person asked them to do it, it's as if it's their children doing it. And what about when somebody deaths or not? They're alive and they won't do it, and, you, and you're offering to do it for so what, them. So what, what we do is, we actually have that service here, for example, that people cannot say Kaddish every single day, so therefore they can pay somebody to say Kaddish. And what's the concept that they should pay? And we will make it that it should be like a certain amount per day, is that that charity that that person's actually doing something, a mitzvah for that soul but to say. if you're willing to do it without paying? You better that they should pay, even if the person's willing to do that, because that there should be a mitzvah involved from the... So no, I mean... I understand. From, if, let's say, a nephew says, I'm going to do it, or a cousin or a friend says, I have a minion, I'll do it every day. The child, the one who has the obligation, should give that person money to do it, so there's a connection. Uh, right, uh, when you make a family that's not, if cheap doesn't want to do it, then if they cheap, then the soul is going to be in cheap. Again, if the soul, then the soul is going to be cheap. Now, of course, that soul will get a blessing because there's somebody doing it for them, but there's nothing like the family. Again, because when it's the family, it's who the person can say, my prerogative, my child, I did something. So that you have a good friend, you didn't do anything for yeah, it. But it doesn't help that you're willing to do it for that person. It helps you're... because you're doing a mitzvah for that soul. Is it the same as a child? Absolutely no. not. So let's go just con to conclude for today. Imagine a moment. A medical researcher who spends many years in a lab and finally succeeds to finding a cure for cancer. And with, with this one discovery, he removes pain and suffering for millions of people. The noble priest community in Sweden calls him up and says, you're going to get the million dollars, you're willing the Nobel Peace Award, and ultimately you can come there. It's perfectly natural that this guy should get the prize, because what did he do? He found the cure for cancer. Yet, for the researcher himself, somebody forgot the prize. It's a little anticlimactic. What's the prize going to be worth compared to the fact that 20 million people are now cured? 
when we do something that's important, it's more significant than the memory. The same ideas. When we operate in this world, doing something in the present, it helps us more than just thinking about something that happened in the past. And being that we know that we explained that the physical purpose is this world, to live in this world, yes, the memories and everything that happened in the previous worlds are wonderful. But at the end of the day, what's our objective? Our objective is to live in this world, to live in the present and do the active commands. As we see in text number 15, a line that Rebel Leo Zulman used to say, the primary reward in the hereafter is the soul returning to its source and uniting with God, certainly. However, it is even greater than those soul connects with God here in this world through the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs for what is the purpose of creation. What he's saying very simply is, don't live life for the hereafter. Don't live life now saying, I'm doing a mitzvah because I want to have a good place in heaven. We don't live life to get brownie points in heaven. Because the only time that we can really do a mitzvah is here. Even the souls up there are depending on us. The Alter Rebbe expressed this in Yiddish, he said. I'll say it first in Yiddish because of its unbelievable language. Ich will sei garnished. Ich will nicht ein Ganeden. Ich will nicht ein Enon haben. Ich will dich allein. When Alter Rebbe, text number 16. I want nothing at all. I don't want your paradise. I don't want your world to come. I want you alone. What is you alone? When you do a mitzvah, you have God alone. When we do a mitzvah, we're not doing it because we want a place in heaven. We're not doing it because we want to avoid purgatory. We're doing it because we want God. And the way we do God is when we do a mitzvah. Rabbi Akiva once said, the entire world was never perfect as the day Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, was given to the Jewish people. And he says as well follows, because entire scriptures is just holy. But Shir Hashirim is the Holy of Holies. Why is Shir Hashirim the Holy of Holies? Because what does Shir Hashirim talk about? Relationship of us and God. When you think about a marriage, a husband and wife, they can do everything for each other. But what really matters in the marriage is the relationship. Is that you have, that you're there for one another. It's not the presence you give. It's not the home you live in. It's what you do for one another. That is the Holy of Holies. The same idea as us with the Jewish people. We don't see it maybe with our physical eyes. And to go back to your question, how do I know? It is because it's a relationship that I have here in the present with God. I'm not doing a mitzvah because I want to be with God later. It's because when I do a mitzvah now, I can experience God right now, right here in the present. And that I don't need to know. How do I know it's true? That I know it's true. That I experience, that I feel, and that I can believe. One mitzvah at a time, we all have the ability to connect to God here and now, not wait until after 120 experience heaven or hell next week we throw a whole monkey wrench into this whole story why because we're going to talk about reincarnation how does reincarnation work if the souls go to heaven and hell what's the purpose of them coming back down into this world does maybe judaism not believe in reincarnation for that i'll leave you on a cliffhanger 
Hope you're able to sleep over the week, but we'll get to see you next week. Same time, same place. Just a quick reminder of some housekeeping announcements. Purim is this Thursday night, 6.15 p.m. We have a Megillah reading here at Purim. And then Friday, we have three Megillah readings, 8 o'clock morning service with a Megillah reading, 12, 12, 2 o'clock, I'm sorry, and 4 o'clock. So hopes to see you over Purim. God bless you all. Wishing you a happy Purim and happy and healthy. Remember, that mitzvah connects you to the now and the present with God. Any questions? No problem. Huh? I'm sorry. Any questions? Rabbi? Yes. Fidel, do you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Now, is it um, not mandatory, but you say the Kaddish for 30 days first? Is for, that a, right? for a spouse, it's 30 days. For a child, it will be for 11 months. Oh, but my son is doing it for his Correct. father. And he should do it for 11 months. 11 months? Correct. Okay, thank you, Rabbi. No problem. A child is 11 months. I put a child, 11 months. Okay. Rabbi? Yes. You just said that a, that, a, that only a spouse or maybe sister, brother, whatever, should be done for 30 days. But I was once told that even after the 30 days up to the 11 months, the person, somebody should say Kaddish anyway. Yes, 100%. Somebody should say, if that, let's say, spouse has, does not have children, then the spouse continues to say for 11 months. For example, the Rebbe said Kaddish for his wife for 11 months. Okay. Because there was no children saying Kaddish, so therefore he said it for 11 months. But the children are obligated to say it for 11 months for the time of mourning. Okay. Okay. If and not only that, if there are children saying Kaddish, then the spouse doesn't even have to say Kaddish. Just to keep that in mind. <laughs> if we talk about obligations, if the children are saying Kaddish, the point is that the children should say Kaddish. Only if there's no children, then the spouse does. They can't be. The fact that you came to shul and you're davening, that's also a mitzvah. It's not. I don't know equal, I don't measure, but uh, spirituality we can measure, but it's a mitzvah that you did in memory of that individual. Okay, have a good night. Take care. All the best. See you next week. Good night. Thank you. One second, there's something in the chat. Hold on. I say Kaddish every day on the line at 4 p.m. That's great, I guess. So can you say Kaddish online? What is that? Can you say, again, Kaddish is only said in a minion with uh, 10 people in order to be able to have the value of Kaddish. Wonderful. But as you notice that Kaddish is not a blessing, it's not something, it's not saying yeah, Hashem's okay. name in vain. You can say it a hundred times. It's not saying God's name in vain. But saying Kaddish for the memory of somebody should be done with a minion in person. Best possible scenario. Mm-hmm. Okay, have a good night. Rabbi, yes. you should then uh, go to Wikipedia and change what they say. I should go to that one? Because in Wikipedia, which is, this is my understanding, which is the coolest thing of it, more disguises, more prayer services on certain other occasions is written in Aramaic. It takes the form of Kaddish, whatever, 